For context, this episode was recorded February 2021. Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jezzy, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. On today's podcast, we talk about the documentary A Thousand Cuts, and later on we talk about the politics of the Philippines and truth and power. But before we do that, Sigs, let's catch up. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus for a little bit before we came back to recording in the studios here. What have you been up to? Well, you know what? I have like some interesting news, and this happened in February. So Uh my wife and I had been on the show Marilyn Dennis like in 2013, right? So Emily had noticed that there... I guess they were recording their 2000th episode in February. And my wife's right. like, I'm going to apply. I'm like, apply for what? Like, to be in the audience. I'm like, it's virtual. She's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. And apparently 2,000 people applied, and they only chose 25 people to be in a virtual audience. They chose wow. they sh- No, no. They chose Emily. I'm like... Oh, and she was, like, really excited. I'm like, okay, well, that's cool, I guess. And I go, I'll deal with the kids because there was homeschooling. So I'm like, I'll deal with them. You deal with the show. And so... My wife was like, oh, my God, maybe I'm going to get something. You know my wife with the giggly voice. Like, course, <laughs> maybe I'll get, course. like, a sweater. Or a, I'm like, Emily, this isn't not going to be Oprah's favorite things or something. Like, what are you talking about? Kuya, it was Oprah's favorite things. <gasps> she got a Keurig machine. She got oh a cocktail gosh. machine. She got a wow. Roku bar. We got Crave <laughs> subscription. She got a <gasps> bottle of champagne. She got mood lights, like this lighting thing. She got, oh my gosh. Yeah, like she got a mess load of stuff and she literally wow. had to like follow up and, and a mug, which she's the most excited about. <laughs> but she was squealing <laughs> and I guess the 25 people in the audience, they all made videos so there's gonna there's a video yes. montage i think this aired february 15th so i'll have to show it the next time we see each oh other oh my god i'm gonna tape. have to find it no, yeah yeah it was yeah literally so it's like come up. oprah's favorite things they got a bunch of stuff and the cocktail machine Amazing. is like think of a keurig so you have like the pucks and you bring your own yes. alcohol and mix it like 500 <laughs> like 500 like worth and this new keurig oh machine my gosh. like it was sick ass because she's like what did you say i'm like i guess i was wrong because it was like oh my god you're gonna have to totally eat crow or at least press the button on the keurig machine and that's or the fine cocktail maker. I, I don't hate it i'll have roku sandbar hey and that brings me to we have crave I don't say no to <laughs> a subscription of Crave. So I've been diving deep into Issa Rae and Insecure, and I'm going to try to watch The Undoing is in my queue. Oh, you'll have to tell me all about that. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Emily, incredible. You had like a 1.25% chance of, <laughs> you know, getting a virtual seat, and here you are winning a jackpot, practically. Uh, je suis très jaloux, right, as Absolutely. they would say in the French, right? I'm very jealous. That, that I'm very jealous, perfect. but very happy for you guys, too, oh, yeah, as well. It's super fun. Well, I'll make you cocktails, or I'll, I'll bring it to Toronto the next time I visit during I can't time. wait. I can't wait. So what pop culture have you been into? What have I been into? Well, actually, I've been catching up on the season of Below Deck ah. Season 8. So as you know, I very much enjoy this show. People call it a guilty pleasure. 
as you know, Sigs, I don't think that there's anything <laughs> as a guilty pleasure for the two of us. So shame me all you want. I don't really care. But this show is really delectable oh, in yeah. so many ways. However, I have to say season seven was the last that we had seen of the chief stewardess, Kate Chastain. Uh-huh. And so that was her last season. And so we now have a new chief stew. Her name is Francesca, mm-hmm. but they just call her Chess for short. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about just watching people kind of do service on a luxury yacht that seems very appealing and how they're going to do it. Yes, yes, yes. How long do they normally stay, like, in rotation? Like, do they stay, like, several seasons or do it just choose to just for, like, an amount of time? How do they rotate out? Well... Kate Chastain, if I remember correctly, she came in at season two oh, and wow. then quickly a became time. a fan, yeah, yeah, a fan favorite until season seven. By the time season four came around, mm-hmm. the original focus of the show was how is this crew going to meet the ridiculous demands of the rich and famous chartering a yacht, like a super yacht? So it's not like five star service; it's not even six star service. It's supposed to be seven star service, and so That's yeah, major. like so if, if you've never watched the show, basically what happens is guests come on like rich and famous guests come on and they ask for like the most ridiculous things it's like (laughs) oh we want like a bubble bath party on the aft deck so they have to find like bubbles and a bubble machine or it's like we want to make s'mores on the Etruscan Cove around the corner over there. And so they have to like bring deck chairs onto land, mm-hmm. you know, all this crazy stuff while they're making rose flavored marshmallows for them to Holy. roast and turn into s'mores. It is incredible and it's fun, but th- that was the original focus. Like how will the staff meet the ridiculous needs of the guests? But since season four, it shifted. Now it's like, will the staff get along? And I think what ended up happening was the producers put together people that didn't really get along well and they purposely I think wanted that to happen so uh, that there would be lots of fights drama. and so and it continues with that into season 8 a little bit so it's always oh you can tell where the conflict is going to occur but nevertheless like I still like to watch it and interestingly enough they have a Torontonian or oh, someone no north of Toronto yeah so they usually end up getting people with the most strongest accents so <laughs> typically they'll get somebody from Australia, uh-huh. New Zealand South Africa and then now they mix it up by putting a, someone from Canada in it. Oh my so gosh. it was kind of, yeah, it's kind of funny. The guy's name is David, but in any event, it's been fun to watch so far. And it's really interesting because I'm coming up to where the coronavirus pandemic intersects with the actual filming oh, no of way. the show. Oh. It kind of intersects at that point. So it's been kind of fun to watch it in reverse and, and in view, you know, in hindsight, thinking about how all of this is kind of affecting production. So I'm slowly coming up to that. I think I've got two more episodes left until I finish this season, but it's been uh, fun to watch for the last couple of weeks. So oh, cool. Now, of course, as I'm talking about Below Deck, there's no way to actually segue into this. This particular uh, documentary or this pop culture. This week on this main episode, we assigned ourselves to watch this documentary that we both heard about and we're just curious, really curious. Yes. I would think that that's probably maybe the way to kind of describe this whole viewing of this particular documentary. But I'll leave it up to you, (laughs) Sigs, to describe to our listeners what this documentary is about. And again, this documentary is called A Thousand Cuts. Yes, it's on PBS Frontline. It's available on YouTube, just released on January 8th, 2021. So what happens when the president of a democratic country with a constitution that's supposed to guarantee freedom of the press goes to war against the leader of a news outlet that has been openly critical of the president? 
That's the main log line there. So Rappler was one of the media outlets in the Philippines that dared to question these policies and demand that Duterte, the president of the Philippines, and his administration be held accountable for senseless murders done in the name of enforcing the law. Mm-hmm. Thousand Cuts focuses on the executive editor and the CEO, Maria Ressa. So that name may be familiar to many because she was 2018's, one of 2018's Time People of the Year. She's mm-hmm. a partial owner of the Rappler and is the main focus of this documentary, which has an up-close look into her life during her battles with the Duterte administration. That's it in a nutshell. It Right. Go ahead, Kuya. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you what your reactions were because I was going to share my reactions. My first reaction was I was in shock. I was like, this is a documentary. This isn't a film, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I was just, this is happening. And I had heard about it. And I feel like you and I glazed over it when we were discussing, like, because this was 2018, that this is happening. This is actual true life that this this woman who, when I see Maria Reza, she does look like one of my Ninangs. There's just this humanity and calm that this woman is like navigating through. She was a light for me. And for some reason, after watching this, I remember talking to my mom when I was younger. I'm like asking about Cory Aquino. And I just felt that the same sort of lens of like this calm person in this tumultuous time, just trying to navigate through. I just, shock is my first thing. Like the danger that these people that she faces and her staff faces. What's your initial reaction? So I had a lot of thoughts about this and I thought to myself, you know, I don't live in the Philippines on a daily basis. I certainly get to visit it. It is certainly a place that I have, I share my cultural heritage with. And I just wondered if it had a chilling effect on some people. And I get, depending where your politics are, Mm -hmm. it might either have a chilling effect or not. Right. But I couldn't help but think to myself, well, what happens if a news outlet here, popular news outlet here, was being somehow censored by the Prime Minister of Canada or something like that? Right. And I just thought chilling, right, is what I thought, because it very much was trying to highlight this idea of press freedom. And, you know, I think in North America, we typically call it the freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, and they call it press freedom. Mm-hmm. And how they had highlighted that it's integral to democracy. I think one of the other co-reporters that was also showcased, Pia, in the documentary, kept talking about how ability of the press to talk freely is really important. And I think it gets really into tricky topics, you know, Uh and this tricky topic of what is truth these days. And you and I have been talking about this offline Mm. as like, what's it like to live in a post-truth world? And... I watch this and it's like, wow, like, is this what it means to be in a post-truth world? And it doesn't matter on what part of the divide that you are, it's hard to anchor yourself. And I felt kind of a little bit unmoored, you know, in some ways, or unanchored, meaning that what do you believe in? What is being said if that is to be taken as truth? She was very remarkably calm throughout all of this. Listeners, she was threatened to be arrested a number of times and then eventually arrested at some point. On her ninth time, yeah. Yeah, that, that it just makes you think about kind of like other people that are standing up for what they believe is the truth. So kind of getting back to this, that original question that I posed to you, as well as to myself, was what's the reaction? It made me really think about kind of just democracy in general and the need for a free and independent press, simply because the press is supposed to act as a watchdog Mm -hmm. in some ways to government and private actors, as far as I'm concerned. And when I say government and private actors, I mean, of course, governments and state nations, Mm -hmm. but I also mean kind of like corporations for that matter. 
if it wasn't for the press, and when I think about the press here in Canada, certainly they challenge Absolutely. the prime minister. It's like why I love watching Vashi Kapelos on the CBC on Power and Politics. She goes after them. But she's very kind and with a polite smile and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I love how she goes after my favorite politicians. It's like, good, you got to ask that question because they got to be accountable in some ways. So just reminds me that it's important to speak to power or speak truth to power. Governments and private actors or corporations have that power and they need to be held responsible in some ways or be accountable. It doesn't mean that when we interrogate them that there's anything wrong. We just want to make sure that the counting, the math follows through, that yeah. everything sums up in some ways. I don't know if you have anything to, I, to kind of add to that. I just, and I encourage our listeners really to take a look at this movie. Like, the fear, the fear that they're standing in truth. And we do mention Maria is that she's so calm and her staff, Pia, and I forgot the other reporter's name, the one Evangelista is her last name. And they would try to tell them of the things they've encountered during this drug war. Right. And right. one of them just teared up. She's like, I'm not as strong as Maria is. And I think Pia concurs when they're speaking at these places. And when they're wishing Christmas, there's a Christmas party at Rappler and Maria Reza goes, there's a lot of monsters out there, and that's okay, because what do we fight them with? And her staff just looks at her, and she's a four-letter word, guys, and they're like, love. Through amidst this, this woman who's being, like, arrested, 98 messages, was it per hour? Something like that, yeah. And stuff, like, she perseveres. Yeah. She's like, it's okay. Like, she even says it very simply, I'm old. It's all good. I'm old. <laughs> I can go through this. And she has the choice to live in the United States because that's where she went to school. She was a Fulbright scholar. She went to Princeton, but she went, her home is the Philippines. And I admire that. No, I'm going to go to the Philippines. And what's interesting, and I, I know it's, I think Jesse sees it, um, they're honoring mm-hmm. her at time 2018. And George and Amal Clooney are honoring this woman. They honor all these people. Mm-hmm. And George Clooney managed to say, he goes, I'm so proud of you, but. Maria, I'm worried for you. I'm in fear for you. I hope you're safe. And even Amal Clooney, there's a little tidbit, and I loved it, because Amal writes her, like, personal email address. Like, and Maria doesn't even take out a phone. She's I like, love I have that a little scene. card, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's like my tita. Like, here's my card. I'm gonna, you call, and Amal is this gorgeous woman, but totally, you call me, like, you email me, I'm going to email you back. So just use this if you need to talk just to Just email me. It. Just email me. Oh, I know. It was kind of like, oh, Maria was so kind in that moment because she did say to Amal, like, oh, so do you want me to contact your assistant? And she's like, no, 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 just email me directly. But that was the best part. I I think Amal was actually trying to motion to her, like, give me your phone and I'll put my contact information in. But she was like, no, here, you can write it on this card. And it was just like, oh my gosh, like for a journalist, it's that, that's hilarious, right? It's just hilarious. Considering like the heaviness of the topic and it's just eye-opening and it really... There's a lot of aspects and people that they cover in this. And I'm surprised they really let the cameras behind the scenes. And I say that quote behind the scenes to follow these rallies. And like like you said, Kuya, like there's a lot of power and you see a lot of rallies for the opposition to Duterte, like it's Otto Dereto. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah they it had, was crazy. They, well, actually, Bato was for Duterte, but there's, there were other politicians at well that unfortunately did yeah, not win during those midterm congressional elections in 2018, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. 2018 yeah. or something, something along those lines. I recognize that in our listenership, some people might see this woman as a villain and some people would, might see her as a hero. Mm-hmm. I think what's really fascinating about this documentary, whether you think of her as a hero or you think of her as a villain, there was a certain humanity that you just couldn't get away from. I agree. And I just think to myself, that's really interesting. Like she might be 
a hard-hitting journalist, but what's behind her and what's behind that journalistic facade, if you can kind of call it that, or that journalistic persona <laughs> is someone human and someone like any of our aunts could be, Absolutely. you know, and still had a bit of serenity. So that's something to be kind of almost celebrated in some ways. Like I think if anything, the the documentarian really just got the humanity of it all. That at the end of the day, this is a person that we're talking about. It's like in as much as she's caught up in the politics of all of this, mm-hmm. at the same time, there is a human being. I think the other thing that I walked away from this documentary thinking about was that when you speak truth, of course it leads to conflict. Mm-hmm. But I always think to myself, you know, we don't need to be afraid of conflict. In fact, I think sometimes conflict is important. It's actually in debate and in conflict that we actually get to better solutions. Like I just think about when I'm at work and we are debating particular ideas or different ways of doing things. Sometimes it's the person with the dissenting voice that actually has the best solution. And if we just outright dismiss them because we're the majority or something like that, we could lose out on a really good idea. And so I just think to myself, hmm, like we really need to kind of think about how conflict isn't about necessarily silencing people or speaking the truth doesn't need to necessarily lead to conflict that then results in silencing people. Maybe what it is is we got to hear that side out and then ask ourselves, is there a better solution in light of what we've just heard? Some of the takeaways that I'm taking away with is, is it also made me think about how this idea of the loyal opposition. I know here in Canada, what we call the opposition party is the loyal (laughs) opposition party. And I started to think more and more about that, that I'm struck by and concentrate on this qualifier loyal. The reason why I think that is, is that with respect to the press, whether it's here in Canada, the United States, around the world, in the Philippines, The press argues and brings to the government's awareness their blind spots. And the press's critiques are not meant to attack the government, although I'm sure government leaders might actually (laughs) feel attacked. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. But it's to help them. That's right. It's to help them see the blind spots and then are thus loyal. You know what I mean? It's it's that good friend that's saying that dress or that outfit doesn't look good on you. It's like, Kuya, you're too old to wear that Abercrombie sweater. (laughs) And it's like, no, but I love it. I love it. But you're too old. You're just too old. Yes, you might be criticized, but that's the truth. And don't you actually want the truth in some ways? And so that person that's actually critiquing is probably loyal in the end. It's interesting that she chose to live in the Philippines, even though she could have lived in the United States. Her family had immigrated to the United States. And then in the end, she had said, I want to live in the Philippines because during the Cory Aquino revolution, the People's Power revolution, she was really excited as to what Asia and the Philippines could become as uh, dictatorships like the Marcos regime was starting to crumble and fall. It was like, maybe these countries can become, you know, certain standard bearers of democracy. And so she didn't come to the Philippines to dismantle it. I think she came because she was loyal to this idea of wanting to have a great country. That's what I also walked away with in terms of just other takeaways. Did you have any takeaways from... Just the importance of freedom. And I do like the fact that you do say, like, they're being held accountable. That's why they're asking these questions. I think that's such a really good point. I acknowledge that where we live in Canada, that this isn't one of the prime issues. I feel that we're lucky that there is freedom of press here. 
journalism from growing up, I was like, oh, it seems like a simple job or whatever. But then when people go to war-torn countries and stuff, and this example, like, it, there is riskiness. There, there is some danger. But they're playing such an important role just to stand in the truth. So I, I concur with you. But I just... Uh, it, it was just eye-opening, and I take that away, and I, I, I'm thankful that I, I live in Canada and people are able to voice their opinions without severe attacks. I mean, people do get attacked and trolled, but not to the of extent course. the staff of Rappler have endured. Yeah, I think good versions of democracy have lots of checks and balances. Yeah. And so you have the legislatures that make the laws that then are upheld by, or not upheld and struck by courts and appeals courts and Supreme Courts. And then you also have opposition parties mm -hmm. that hold the people accountable. And then you have the press, right? right? And the press is there to make sure that the power is being dispensed of correctly. In other words, they have to account for why they're doing what they're doing. And I, it made me think about how... Why does the press do that? Apart from being like the loyal opposition, you know, for government and private actors, why do they do that? Well, they do that to kind of make sure that the power that's being dispensed of is being done so in an equitable and fair way. And I thought to myself, well, why mm -hmm. is that? And I kind of came upon this, this idea that power amplifies behavior at the end of the day. Yeah. And so you just take one behavior, but as it gets more power that behavior can become unbridled, it can become hurtful, it can become quite impactful. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, I think the Philippines has had that history of seeing amplifying behavior in ways that can be hurtful. And in some ways, that's been the history of at least of recent Philippine politics mm -hmm. on power being amplified in ways. But I think it goes way before that. Like, I think all of that, if you will, corruption of Philippine power politics, if you will, if I can call it that, has to do with the legacy of Spanish colonialization. And really? I, you know, I remember, well, you know, I know, I, could, I probably could say, oh, it's back to Spanish colonialization, right? But I think to myself, I remember how someone had explained the world powers while they were colonizing the world. So the English, the Spanish, and the Portuguese. Okay. And they had said that basically the English colonized through trading and then reneging on their trades, oh. you know, trade agreements. Yes. <laughs> so it was like, we trade with you. So they did a lot of bait and switching is how English colonialization <laughs> worked. And that the Spanish colonialization worked in terms of not necessarily trading, mm -hmm. but giving gifts or regalos, ah. which then eventually became bribes. I guess I, I can see the you know? shift. And, yeah. Well, yes. So here's okay. a gift and then you're going to give me something. And then the gift suddenly becomes money or becomes a bunch of different things, favors or the Padrino systems and stuff like that. And then interestingly enough, that same person that was sharing their theory of how colonialization has kind of turned into certain things that, you know, for the Portuguese colonializers, it became a show of force, which ends up becoming violence and thuggery, oh. interestingly enough. And so when you look at some of the Portuguese, or some of the countries in the world that were colonized by the Portuguese, you kind of see that. You see a lot of 
thuggery or violence in the streets and stuff like oh, wow. that. And you can just think of Brazil and you can kind of, in the favelas, right? Anyways, this isn't about Portuguese <laughs> colonialization. It is certainly about the legacy of Spanish colonialization. And when we think about the power politics that go on there, that, yeah, there has been a lot of bribery and use of the Padrino system. What is the system. Padrino system? Good question. I think it's basically around passing on favors back oh, and forth. okay. In terms of nepotism, oh. they also have that too, right? And so there's lots of nepotism that goes on. Although I will say this, I did want to share a version of nepotism that actually worked, you know, and I could be biased simply because I was the beneficiary of it. But my dad had worked for a manufacturing Mm -hmm. company and one of their benefits, and it was a candy factory. So my dad worked for a candy factory, so we would get lots of candy. And interestingly enough, as a benefit, they would hire sons and daughters of the factory workers oh. to work during the summer so that we could then make our summer money. Yeah. And interestingly enough, we were actually packing Halloween candy. That's why there would be a, a predictable surge. Right. And they would need that help in the summer creating all of these prepackaged candies for Halloween. Mm. So, of course, they'd hire like 100 students and then we'd all get hired. And usually it was on... Lottery. So from one to 100, I would be number 32 some years, number 10 some years. So whatever number you were, you would get hired throughout the summer based on that number. And it was a benefit, right? right? Like they called it a benefit. And it was like, but it was purely nepotism. Like when looking back, it's like, oh, that's nepotistic for sure. But it was a benefit. It was a benefit of working for the company. I don't think you see that many companies doing that anymore. And I can tell you, Six, like I made $20 an hour. This was the mid 80s. Whoa. You know, working for a candy. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And it was a good benefit. And then like I saved up enough for university. That's amazing. Yeah, it was totally amazing. But like, so that was nepotism working at its best at the time. And so let me just say, my dad just totally loved it because he felt so kind of he understood what this whole nepotistic system meant and didn't think twice about it. But I think now looking back on it, it's like, wow, that was nepotism. And no one thought twice about that in the <laughs> 80s. But in terms of nepotism as well, like I think to myself, you know, you might be thinking like, how does that look like? An interesting statistic that I found was is that a third of the politicians in the Philippines are replaced by relatives in the Philippines. Interesting. I think that that's really interesting. And then that creates political families and political family dynasties. And so there's a history of it. Even the Aquinos have had like a number of relatives. The Marquises, of course, Estrada. And now Duterte, right? right? Like so his... Daughter? Yeah, the Dutertes certainly have like his daughter who's the mayor following in the same footsteps and are currently actually saying that she could be a potential front runner for the next general elections that are coming up. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think there's something, like, I think I was checking out the news on this. There's, like, 15 people, you know, among them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, 15 people. I don't know how that's going to eventually narrow down. One of them is my parents' favorite, who's the current mayor of Manila, Cisco Moreno. Yes. Yes. And I got to see him, and my dad got a selfie, and I'm very jealous. Like a year ago, Kuya. Like a year ago, right? Yeah. Can you imagine? It was a year ago that I got to meet this man. It's just too bad I didn't get to get a selfie. And I got to go to his desk. That's cool. So I got to go to his side. That is so cool. So it was very cool. But yes, but coming back (laughs) to this kind of political family dynasties, I certainly think that the Dutertes are having a dynasty with respect to Duterte's daughter being considered one of the early front runners in an eventual political race down the road for the presidency once Duterte finishes his term. You know, the other thing is, is just kind of knowing that bribes are not only synonymous with 
getting through government and government lines, but it's also synonymous with action and political actions. Hmm. And I think that that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, at least with the documentary. What's been problematic is not only just bribes, but the political actions that have been taken, especially around what the world has been calling extrajudicial killings or human rights violations. So that's been kind of what's been problematic by all of this. But all of this has also made me think too, kind of like, oh, there's usually some type of index in terms of whatever topic we're thinking about. And so in this case, we're kind of thinking really a lot about kind of democracy and how it stands. And I know that even the United States and here in Canada, do we think about kind of the democracy and how sometimes fragile it can feel? And what was really interesting was finding it in the democracy index that Canada, of course, I'm not surprised, ranks number five. It's been steady at number five. I think it's like Norway that's at number one or something like that. And this is out of 167 countries. Number 167 is North Korea. Self-explanatory? Yes, and I think that that's that's self-explanatory, that that there's no democracy or very Very little little democratic thinking going on there. But they rank the Philippines at number 55. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure I probably need political studies, a political science professor or academic, a scholar to explain to me what does that mean. But I do find that really interesting that it's at number 55. It's supposed to be a democracy, but it doesn't rank as high. Uh, There is perhaps a major flaw in it. And I wonder if it has to do with what we were talking about earlier in terms of the the free press. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I kind of went on a big, huge kind of like. Oh, no, no. I just find it interesting because I think you brought it up before because I think I remember you talking about the regalo. And I'm like, oh, well, guests, right? Like when people come to other countries, they give guests. And then, but see, do you ever think about the expectation, right? So this is the reason why behind it. And then you evolved into bribes. I'm like, ah. I see. Again, or whatever, this is going to be probably more conversations on our podcast in the future, but I like that little... Well, I do want to share a story with you. Okay, go ahead. So the running myth, and I call it a myth because I still have to ask a whole bunch of questions of my parents around this, but the running myth is is, is that when my parents were back in the Philippines and my dad was working for Moralco at the the time, which is an energy electricity Uh company, of course, the paycheck would come in and my mom would have to try to intercept him in terms of that paycheck before any of my dad's friends would actually intercept uh-huh. him. Because if they did, they would invariably say, Bade, can I borrow some money? Of course, my dad's a pretty generous guy. So of course he would be like, here yeah. you go. My mom got the wiser and made sure that my dad came home right away on payday and was able to give her the check or her the money. Years later, we were on some North American states trip. We were somewhere in New Jersey and my dad was like, oh, let's look up this friend of mine that we used to work together back in the Philippines. Yeah. And so, and as you know, we are a culture where we'll visit you unannounced. Oh my course, God, exactly. You know? so, <laughs> things like, I swear, like if you lived in Toronto, we'd probably I, see each other know, a lot I mean, more. Post-pandemic or we'd pre-pandemic, yeah, I probably would be visiting you like- Bi-weekly. You know, Emily, I apologize in advance. <laughs> yeah, it would be like, oh, I'm coming over. It's like, I want to see Mac and yeah. like pinch his cheeks or something yeah. like that. And he's like, oh, why is Tito here again? Like, I, I would you be know, so casual. You're like, I'm just coming alone. over. Like, let's, let's eat Kentucky fried chicken from a box with some yeah. rice. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> totally would do that. Yeah. I know Michael and I have done that. We've done that to one of our friends. We love you, Tara. <laughs> but yeah. But my dad said, let's do oh, yeah. it. So then he called on the rotary phone oh my God. and said, hey, we're in town. Yeah. It says like, can we come over? And they were like, uh, yeah, sure. Oh, come, right? Okay. And, 
So we came over and they didn't invite us in They because, of course, we're unannounced. And I think it was at a late hour. And my dad really wasn't wanting to do anything more than Hello. just to yeah. say hi and just reconnect. And just he had no other agenda. And so I'm there with him. And he says, oh, this is your son. That's so great. He, he's so big, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then he says, just wait. And so he goes in and then he gives me an envelope. He says, this is for you, okay? And I was like, oh, oh yeah, this is, right? And, and he says, just take it. And then he like shoved it in my front pocket. And then afterwards, we're like at the car with the rest of the family. And he says like, do you know what he gave you? And I said, no, I don't know. And so I pulled it out, yeah. right? And it was like a wad of cash. Whoa. <laughs> so, wad of American money. I mean, it wasn't a lot of American money from what I remember. Yeah. The point being is this, this is that this person felt a debt of favor to my dad because he had gotten some money yeah. as a gift. Although he technically borrowed it. So, right? I mean, where's like, the interest it, exactly? He, <laughs> yeah, it was like, where's the interest or whatever the case may be. But it was interesting, right? There was a debt uh-huh. in some ways. And I think he thought my dad was coming to kind collect of collect it? Oh my God, debt. that's so funny. You know? Now, it's not the same thing as a bribe, right? But it does kind of fit in with this idea of a regalo in some yeah. ways, you know? There are usually strings attached when it comes to these types of gifts or these types of favors. That idea of no good deed goes unpunished really rings true in some ways. And I think is, again, a remnant or a legacy of Spanish colonialization. Have you ever had any experiences like that where like you've seen kind of this kind of odd dynamic in terms of money being lent, you know, yes. uh, your parents' I've friends? I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it in cases where someone was desperate for money and they would go to anyone or someone that had owned like a grocery store and be like, oh, I have it. And like, you know, the Filipinos talk or whatever, then you hear that, oh, someone borrowed money from this person. And there was an owing, whether it be paid back through work or lumpia or like some sort of food, there was some sort of debt entailed with it. And I'm talking very broadly because I know some people are listening. So yeah, Mm -hmm, I've mm -hmm. seen it in very subtle ways where I'm like, oh, oh, they went to that person? Okay. And that's why they have this type of relationship. So yeah. Yeah. And I hope our listeners don't think that we're judging, right? Like it is really more about just kind of curiosity around kind of the favors and the dynamics that's created. I mean, Sigs and I both recognize that we're very Canadian in a lot of ways. And so we don't have a full understanding of it. I mean, I think we'd readily admit that we think very differently about these things. When Sigs gives me a gift, thank you, you know, and vice versa and, and stuff like that. I don't ever feel like things have a string attached necessarily. And I don't have to parse out this idea of does this gift come with strings attached or not? It's like a gift is a gift is a Mm -hmm. gift. So I'm always curious about kind of how do other Filipinos kind of navigate that? And clearly it's something to kind of think about and has infiltrated its way, not only through the culture, but into Filipino politics in a lot of ways. That's an interesting thought. In any event. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So all of this kind of leads us eventually to a fixing of the week or a fixing for this particular episode. And all of this talk about democracy, freedom of the press, being in a (laughs) post-truth world where disinformation, misinformation is really now the norm, you know, more than ever. It's so important to think critically. And 
I think to myself that that is one step in becoming media savvy in some ways. And especially when I talk to my nephews and nieces, I I talk about the importance of trying to figure out like, where did you get that? You know, where did you get that fact? Can you find that reference? Where's that citation? For any of our listeners out there, if you see our show notes, we like to cite as much as possible where we get some of this information. And that's why in our show notes, we show you where you can find some of the information or links on because we do have to kind of think critically about the information that we get and see if we can triangulate it. So I encourage everyone out there to question and discern the truth because no matter how ugly or unflattering it may be, you know, if we don't find the truth, how are we going to get to the best solution? As I had said earlier. That's well put. That's the fixing of the week. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add to that, six before you uh, take No, I think that's really well put. And especially during the social media age and what we have available, really take a look and, and try to think, hey, we're Gen Xers. The days were just like the National Post or a trashy sun paper we knew, which was much <laughs> more accountable. So I, I really like how you put it, Kuya. Question and discern the truth, no matter how ugly or unflattering it may be. May be. It's a great way. Yeah, Folks, we want to hear what you think. If you have taking a look at the movie, the documentary, A Thousand Cuts, which is available on YouTube. Tell us what you think at holaholapopculture at gmail.com. Please, if you listen to our podcast, rate us, leave a review on podcast platforms, share, tell your friends about us. And you can find us on social media. You can tweet at us on Twitter. Our handle is holaholapop and on Instagram at holaholapopculture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chal Turingen. We'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you guys soon.